This is a 980 CKNW podcast. I sure hope that you are enjoying this summertime, wherever you may be, in this glorious country we call Canada. Good evening. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show, a show that is all about health. It's been said your health is your wealth and leads to a longer and happier life and even better relationships, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, 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 even sexual. That's the cue to put the kiddies to bed as a nun that I had in grade school used to say, a word to the wise is sufficient. Listener discretion is advised. I have a passion for evidence-based health information to guide you so that the life you lead is the best it can be. My aim is to provide you with up-to-date health information so that you know there are options for treatment. Please, however, consult with your medical doctor for anything that ails you. Tonight, we are talking about lots of different subjects. But first, I want to give a shout out to Ken, Ken, who found my wallet this week and who bothered uh, to get it back to me in a very uh, quick period of time. Uh, when I when I met Ken uh, after his number was provided to me on social media, uh, social media is so fantastic. And we're going to be talking about that tonight as well. But uh, so I, I met him. I actually didn't even realize that I had dropped my wallet, uh, but he picked it up and he found it and uh, and he found me, which was great. I, I so appreciated that. So I brought him a little reward, a cash reward and um, for his troubles and his time. And he was very surprised at that. And he was he was really surprised. He said, oh, no, no, I don't want to take that. And I said, please, I insist. And and, and he said, you know, thank you so much. That's going to come in so handy. I am dead broke. So am I, but no. Um, but anyway, then he went on to tell me that uh, that uh, he could go and get a few beers <laughs> at the local pub. I'm like, you should go to happy hour. That money will go a lot further at a happy hour. Anyway, I digress. So I really appreciate that. If you do find something or somebody else, just know that it just, you know, they would be, it's so hard to actually have to replace your driver's license and license and all the cards that I have (laughs) in my wallet. So I am so grateful. But tonight on the program, we have lots to talk about. We are going to be talking about social media and the effect that social media now has on or may have on sex education for children. So we're going to be talking about why Ontario wants to set sex education back by 20 years. In addition to that, we are going to be talking about Alcohol consumption and some of the guidelines on how much you should be drinking, especially this summer. And uh, and if you're drinking too much, what are the options you have out there? And also, dying by suicide. How will technology help dying by suicide or, pre- or prevention of death by suicide? Well, I have a, a technological person who's going to join me and talk about that, and I'm really excited about that. And how about no strings attached? I hope you put the kids to bed. I'm going to be talking about no strings attached. Yes, that. Um, And uh, but you know what? Is that really healthy for you? But first of all, can you engage in no strings attached? Uh, Is it easier for men? Is it easier for women? But do you really want to do that? Because what effect does marriage actually have on your heart? The benefits uh, may outweigh that of. N-A-S, no attached, you know what. Um, So we've got lots to talk about on the program tonight, um, including some of your emails as well. But right now, what I want to talk about is this new government in Ontario who wants to actually set sex education back by about 20 years. They want to go back to 1998. So what does that mean? That means that 
students in grade one will not learn the proper names for their body parts or about nonverbal communication, including facial expressions and tone of voice. Those are critical for children to learn, especially as it relates to unwanted sexual advances, sexual abuse, sexual trauma. In grade two, students will no longer be taught about changes to the body during development or about the concept of no means no. These are critical aspects for development. It seems that the very conservative right feels that if we talk about this subject, which is shrouded in secrecy and shame, then children are more likely to engage earlier. The evidence doesn't support that. We are so much better off, or our children are so much better off with a comprehensive sexuality health education. In my clinical practice and through emails and online, I am constantly educating adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s about sex. Education that they likely did not get when they were in school. It's expected in Ontario that the parents are going to be teaching children about sex. That doesn't happen. There's, I cannot tell you how many times I hear from patients that, that sex was never discussed in their home. So what else won't happen, especially the effect of the internet on sex education and what children will learn? Because children are going to get this online and they may not get evidence-based information. Grade three students won't discuss same-sex relationships or families with two moms or two dads. And likely there will be students in the classroom that have two moms and two dads. But again, it will be shrouded in secrecy and it will end up in shame for that student, the, the child of, that, of those parents. Grade four students won't hear about the dangers of online bullying or about posting uh, sexual images or about puberty. It's important to know the changes that are going to happen in your body so you're prepared for that. So many women tell me that, you know, when, when their menses began, their mothers had never educated them about that and they just didn't know what was happening. And of course, you know, it's, it's fear. That results in fear. Uh, Grade 6 students won't learn about masturbation or gender expression. And grade 7 students will no longer learn about the dangers of sexting or about contraception, preventing pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, or anal or oral sex. And grade 8 students won't learn about the gender spectrum, male, female, two-spirited, transgender, transsexual, and intersex. It is important. And do we have to have the government controlling the sex education of our children? I say this is a fantastic opportunity for somebody to put this program online. Call it the Ontario Family Education uh, any, uh, for Kids. <laughs> O-F-E-K. OFEC. Um, you know what? Because parents need the support, they need the resources, and if they're going to be the ones talking to their children about this, and if Ontario is not going to be, if the teachers are not going to be, they're not going to, they're going to be having dark ages education, somebody needs to educate these children, and I think it's an opportunity for technology to get involved, and I'm happy to help you with that if you someone out there that would like to work on that with me. Um, we really need to provide this comprehensive sex education for children um, because, you know, so many things were different in Canada in 1998. We were seven years away from legalizing same-sex marriage. It was the time around when Bill Clinton denied that he had had sexual relations, quote-unquote, with former White House attorney or with that woman. 
Google was founded by two Stanford PhD students, and, and Google is a part of our everyday life now. Apple unveiled the iMac, and the iPhone was nine years away. And the U.S. approved Viagra as a treatment for impotence. And the top grossing movie at the time, Saving Private Ryan. So these were different times. They were dark times. They were dark times for students because we actually didn't provide them with accurate, up-to-date information. And um, also, just notably, France last won the FIFA World Cup in 1998. Um, lots of eyes on, on all of that this week. But uh, in case you haven't seen it yet, I won't say anything. But uh, you know what? We really uh, have to look out for our children. We need to provide them with education. We need not to shroud sex in shame. And we need to progress as uh, uh, people who are caring, non-judgmental, kind accepting, supportive. Uh, This is what humanity is, and we need to demonstrate that here in this fine country we call Canada. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We are going to continue our conversation about death by suicide Suicide affects people of every age and background. It does not discriminate. It knows no boundaries. And every day in Canada, about 11 people die by suicide. And that means we lose more than 4,000 people a year in Canada alone. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in Canada. But there is a woman who is working to change all that. Roberta Fox Lawson is a senior management technology advisor, and she has come up with a technology solution to reduce the deaths by suicide in Canada. Good evening, Roberta. Good evening. Thank you for joining me on the program about this very important subject. I'm pleased to be here. That's wonderful. Can you tell me a little bit about Crisis Services Canada and the pilot project CSPS? Yes, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Crisis Services Canada was a dream of of 10 different distress centers that had a vision of being able to come together to act as one virtual call center to provide suicide prevention and support. So it took them about 10 years to get the funding. And last year, uh, late 2016 and early 2017, we got support from Public Health Agency of Canada to develop a prototype and a pilot of the first bringing together multiple distress centers acting as one virtual call center to provide voice, text, and and chat, suicide prevention, and also, Maureen, uh, support to people of Canada that are either thinking about suicide or affected by suicide. So we launched the pilot. Uh, we started in March of 2017. And November 28th, uh, 2017, we went live, and since then we've saved, we've had, we've contacted. Uh, there's been over 12,000 people from across Canada have come in via voice, text, and chat to our trained responders to get the help they need. That's amazing. So you are already saving lives with this technological solution. It's a combination, you know what's really important, Maureen, it's a combination of technology and the, the very well-trained responders coming together. So the technology is sort of the foundation, but the people of, uh, from the distress centers, whether it's one in Calgary or one in Nanaimo or Ontario, can all come together and they can support from other locations that they weren't able to do before. 
Wow. And so how does it work? Is it, is it a person who may be having suicidal thoughts? Do they actually phone in or text in? There's three ways that you can contact Canada Suicide Prevention Service. One is via phone, one is via text, and one is via chat. So depending on the device that you prefer to use or the method you prefer to use, we have sort of three different ways into the virtual distress center. And this is the first of its kind in Canada and the world. It's actually... It's for actually the, it's the first of its kind in the world for two main reasons. First time that voice, text, and chat has been brought together, and the other part that's really useful for the people to help this, they call them service users, is we also have a clinical application, and we have database information about the local services. So we we can record, uh, we can transcribe what what the help you got. We can also provide assistance of what's available in, in your community to help the people. So it's a combination. It's like a three-legged stool. One is the ways that they can communicate. One is the fact that we can give them referral information. And even if the responder is in British Columbia and the service user is in uh, Nova Scotia, they can get the help. And then we have the database of all the different organizations that provide mental health and suicide support. That's amazing. And now, is this service also for people who are caring for people or, or staying by the side of somebody who is uh, thinking about dying by suicide? So can- absolutely, absolutely. It's so, it's, so say you had a, a, a child or a relative or a friend that you're worried about, um, and we can provide assistance, or you've been affected by somebody that has died from suicide. Uh, they, we can provide support services and referrals to support services. And one of the other things that we do, Maureen, with the solutions, because we have this umbrella of information, the responders can also do follow-up calls. So if somebody contacted us on a Monday with permission, we will reach out to them maybe on a Wednesday to say, how how are you doing, how's things, you know, and to provide them the support they need. Because suicidal thoughts can can change. They can change over time. Things might get better. It may pass. And so it can, this is critical for the acute phase or stage of when a person is feeling suicidal. And it's such a shameful situation. People, you know, there's so many medical conditions that are shrouded in shame. And thinking about suicide is certainly one of them. So this provides confidentiality and anonymity mm-hmm. as well. Is that, um, how does that Absolutely. piece work? Absolutely. Our data is, uh, the information is going over the public internet, but it is it is protected by applications. Uh, I won't get too technical, but we have envelopes, it's called virtual private network. Our actual servers that are running the data are stored in uh, dual servers supported by Rogers, which is a telephone company. So very, very, very strict security. We have multiple logins for the responder to log in. So it is uh, as, as secure as financially and logically possible. That's amazing. So who are you finding that is using this technology? What age group? Is there anything in particular? We know that suicide doesn't discriminate, but are you seeing any trends? Well, one of the things that's quite interesting, the service is being used by all ages. The most su- surprising trend from, from our first six months is the 25 to 44-year-old males um, are, are contacting us more than in the past from other support lines. And then also the males 45 to 64 are choosing uh, text and chat. 
So the older males are choosing the the more anonymous, as you said, um, uh, method, and they're the, the 45 to 64 is considered a high risk population that is generally less likely to seek help. So um, it's quite interesting there. And then uh, there's we even have seniors that are using over 65 that are using the services. So. The net of it is that 62%, Maureen, of the people contacting us are preferring text and chat compared to voice. Wow, that's very interesting. And that's interesting who is contacting you as well, um, mm-hmm. being that there you have a, an upsurge of, of men uh, contacting you in those particular age groups. What inspired you to develop this suicide prevention technology solution? Well, um, I wasn't really the one that did the inspiration part. As I said earlier, it was the Canadian Distress Line Network that came together, and we were selected. Uh, We do a lot of work in technology services for over 30 years through my company, but we were selected late March to help get the project uh, finished uh, because there is 11 different technology vendors that it took to pull things together. There was over 143 technical experts, and I was the overall architect who designed and project managed the solution. And there we also had uh, the total team was over a thousand people to make it all come together and design and configure and install, including training people. We had to, as you can imagine, teaching responders to do text and chat support compared to voice. So we had to m- develop different training material, video training. Uh, do role plays because look, teaching people how to, you know, uh, use a smartphone application to help somebody is a very different skill set. So there were a lot of very dedicated people that came together to make this uh, this new virtual contact center support uh, solution come together. And it's amazing. I, I imagine there's a wide, um, uh, you know, a huge amount of um, potential for technology in mental health and. Uh, prevention of death by suicide. What advice do you have for others who may be worried about a loved one who is thinking about dying by suicide? Well, you know, what we're trying to do is one of the most interesting statistics for me is that uh, we've saved, uh, they use the term active rescue. We've we've, uh, helped 181 people in active rescue, but statistics from American Suicide uh, Association of Suicidology says 115 people are affected from each suicide. So we've saved over 20,815 positive impacts. So what we're saying is talk about it, reach out, get the help. If you're worried about somebody, you know, it's better to have them give you heck than go to their funeral. Um, But reach out and get the help that, that, that is needed to help the people. And so we're trying to say... Um, you know, there, there are the statistics also say, Maureen, that one in five people in their lifetime think about suicide. Just It could be just for a short period of time. So it's really quite amazing that it's, you know, not as it's much more common than people believe. And so we're trying to say, have the conversations. If you're worried about your friends, you're worried about your relatives, you're worried about a buddy, uh, call in on their behalf or text and chat in on their behalf. And then tell them that you're worried about them as well. So get the conversations going, which is really important. Thank you so much, Roberta Fox Lawson. And how can people actually get in touch with um, with this app or with this technology solution? Our toll-free number is one eight three three four five six four five six six. Our text is four five six four five, and chat and our website information is 
crisisservicescanada.ca. Thank you so much. That's Roberta Fox Lawson, Senior Management Technology Advisor, Changing Lives of Canadians. And I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being with me. I want to talk about alcoholism, which is no longer known as alcoholism. It's now called alcohol use disorder. It is a condition where a person has a desire or a physical need to consume alcohol, even though it has a negative impact on the quality of their life. It may affect their relationships, their job, their career. In the past, we used to refer to people as alcoholics, but we see this as increasingly unhelpful, and it certainly denotes a negative label. Healthcare professionals, anyway, use the term alcohol use disorder, and it's just a little bit more respectful, and I prefer that use for lay people or for healthcare professionals as well. According to the National Institute of Health, in the year 2015, 15.1 million American adults, that is 6.2 of the population, had an alcohol use problem. According to the World Health Organization, globally, 3.3 million deaths occur every year as a result from the harmful use of alcohol. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, or NIAAA, describes alcohol use disorder as problem drinking that becomes severe. Here in Canada, we would have 1.5 million Canadian adults with an alcohol use problem. So is problem drinking an issue for you? Alcohol use disorder is when problem drinking becomes severe. And a person with this condition does not know when or how to stop drinking. They think about alcohol a lot and they cannot control how much they consume. Even it is causing even when it causes problems at home or work with their kids or with finances and it often affects every domain of a person's life. And it doesn't have to be that it's, that they're drinking every day because some people say I don't drink every day and I'm going to actually give you some recommendations on how much you should be drinking not to be a party pooper but there are some guidelines on that. Uh, but some people say, I don't drink every day. Other people can't leave the party. They are the last ones to leave the party. They don't know when to stop drinking. And that can have a hangover effect for two, three, four days. It can result in anger, missing work, um, you know, failed relationships. So there's a, a lot of issues that can occur. They can just go missing uh, when people can't find them or they don't surface because they're in bed, quite frankly, nursing a hangover. But they don't necessarily have to feel that hangover or be that. There's lots of functioning alcohol use disorder people out there in the world. Alcohol abuse can be used to talk about excessive or inappropriate consumption of alcohol, but not necessarily dependence. And moderate alcohol consumption does not generally cause any psychological or physical harm. I do want to say this, that there are a lot of people who have alcohol use disorder and their behavior can be erratic. They can have lots of energy one day and then no energy the next day. Or they can be really angry. They can lose their cool over nothing. And oftentimes they are misdiagnosed with, with diagnoses such as bipolar disorder or depression, or irritable depression. and But you know what? You cannot actually assess a person and diagnose a person properly until they are sober, until they are not using alcohol. A person who drinks excessive amounts of alcohol will often not be the first person to realize. In fact, they are the last people to realize that they have a problem with alcohol. So some of the signs and symptoms of alcohol use disorder include 
drinking alone or in secret. And, you know, a lot of women do this. A lot of women find that, you know, they want to have children, they want to be stay-at-home moms, and they find that it can be boring and stressful. They may be perfectionists. They may have had a top job, and now they're in the home. And so they start to drink to actually calm their nerves or use it as a medication. It's never a good idea to do that. A lot of uh, alcohol use disorder folks are not able to limit how much alcohol is consumed. They may black out and not be able to remember large chunks of time. And, you know, you might say, well, I talked to you about that last night, and people are like, oh, I, I don't remember. I actually remember I was at a party um, uh, at, in a summer place, and there was somebody new there, and so she was chatting to me, um, you know, a lot in the evening, and she was like, oh, my gosh, I, you are so great. I love you. Oh, my, we should get together, and the whole thing. And she was drinking excessively, and then the next day I saw her. I was walking along the boardwalk, and I said, hey, how are you? Good morning. And she had absolutely no idea who I was. <laughs> No recollection. That was about her, not me. Just saying. Okay. Also, people with alcohol use disorder have rituals and being they become very irritated if someone else comments on these rituals. For example, they may drink before going out, before a meal, after work. And so they have these, these rules and these rituals. They also lose interest in hobbies that they previously enjoyed. And alcohol use disorder can get worse as people get older and as stressors increase alcohol use disorder people feel an urge to drink and they also feel irritable when drinking times approach so they're getting kind of nervous they're getting kind of they can't really wait for the drink especially if the drink is not available or if it's taking a longer time they also may store uh, alcohol in unlikely places or they may just make sure that they have alcohol in every single place they may uh, make sure they have it at home. They may make sure they have it at the cabin or the cottage or the um, the Whistler or the ski house or, or wherever one skis. Um, you know, they may actually drink really quickly. They may gulp uh, their first, second, and third drinks down, you know, just so that they can feel better with themselves. These people have problems with relationships, the law, finances, and anything that stems from drinking. And, and so, you know, they may get t- um, kicked off planes. They may uh, have DUIs, uh, especially, you know, in their past. And they think, oh, it's in the past. I'm not going to do that again. They may or may not learn um, from that as well. They also, as time goes on, need more alcohol to feel the effects. And when they're not drinking, they can experience alcohol withdrawal syndrome, which is nausea, sweating, and shaking when not drinking. And, you know, some people experience some of these signs and symptoms but are not dependent on alcohol. But it, alcohol consumption takes, uh, is a problem when it takes precedence over all of the other activities. It's kind of your number one go-to. It's your priority. Your, you know, it's the alcohol before anything else. And dependence can take several years to develop. That's why you may see issues later on in life. And people actually may get cirrhosis of the liver. You see a lot of that around the age of 50, especially for people who've been drinking, you know, a bottle of wine a night, every night for um, several uh, for several years, 20, 30 years. And, and so it can take a few years, this alcohol dependence, or several decades to develop. Um, and over time, regular alcohol consumption disrupts your glutamate and the gamma aminobutyric butyric acid, the GABA, in the brain. And that controls impulsiveness. The GABA in, controls impulsiveness and glutamate stimulates the nervous system. And so dopamine levels in the brain rise after consuming alcohol 
but dopamine levels may make the drinking experience more gratifying. But over the long or medium term, excessive drinking can significantly can, can significantly alter the levels of these brain chemicals, and it can actually lead to depression. Depression. Alcohol is a depressant. Keep that in mind. But there are certainly some guidelines that we have in Canada's low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines. The LRDG help Canadians moderate their alcohol consumption and reduce their immediate and long-term alcohol-related harm. The guidelines recommend, get this, no more than two drinks a day. Ten per week for women and three drinks a day or 15 drinks per week for men with an extra drink allowed on special occasions. How many of you out there are limiting your alcohol consumption to that recommendation. If all Canadian drinkers were drinking alcohol within these proposed guidelines, it is estimated that alcohol-related deaths would be reduced by approximately 4,600 per year. That's according to the Alcohol and Health in Canada, a summary of evidence and guidelines for low-risk drinking. So, you know what? Be careful what you drink and how much you consume. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're talking about excessive drinking, substance use and abuse, and the impact that this can have on your family, your relationships, your professional career, your job, your children. And Michael Walsh joins me on the line. He is a sober coach, interventionist, CIP candidate, and he is out of British Columbia. Good evening, Michael. Thanks for joining me. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. It's certainly my pleasure. Now, you provide collaborative change, recovery, and case management solutions, including invitational interventions and sober coaching services to individuals, families, employers, treatment centers, disability and occupational health providers, government agencies, and private enterprise all across Canada. So this is incredible work that you do. You're helping one person with substance use and abuse one person at a time, basically. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So tell me how your services work. Well, the sober coaching piece, I like to think of it as sort of the the practical um, application uh, to someone that is wanting to change their relationship to alcohol and drugs. Um, so it's a practical, fun- functional application. Usually what I do is focus on three core areas with each client. So I generally I customize a change plan, but there's, there's usually three core areas. One, uh, we look at relapse prevention. So we really analyze the individual's uh, daily activity, if you will. So that is work, social life, family life. We look at those sort of trigger times. Uh, of people generally 4.30 to 8.30, 9 o'clock at night is a particularly vulnerable time for a lot of people. So we look at the relapse prevention side of things and then we move into the second core area, which is developing a disciplined change plan. And it's going to be different for everyone, and I'll get into that in a, in a couple minutes. But uh, we uh, sort of create a disciplined change plan collaboratively together. The client has a lot of buy-in and uh, uh, is able to create this with myself. And then the third piece we look at, which is further down the road, is looking at life beyond substance use, addiction, and recovery. Um, a lot of people have a lot of fear around quitting a particular substance. They just absolutely don't know what they'll do with themselves. But it is possible. And with the, um, a sober coach and perhaps a clinical component or... A- 
and, it is absolutely possible. And alcohol is is a social event, basically. It's, um, you know, people feel like they may lose their friends if they're not able to go to the party and drink. They, may, they feel like they may not be invited to the parties. And also, uh, people who drink like to have other people around who drink. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it is. And so, you know, part of the change process is really... You know, as I say, the only thing you have to change is almost everything. You really have to take a look at all aspects of your life. And if you have a lot of drinker friends, which if you're a drinker, chances are you do, then that is a part of your uh, environment you'll want to take a look at and potentially change. And do people utilize the 12-step program along with uh, your work? Sometimes. It really, you know, there's a sort of trajectory. Um, I, I slot people into three categories who come to me. Um, the first category is someone who is for maybe overusing alcohol or drugs to the degree that they're like, hey, you know what, I'm actually not comfortable with this. Uh, um, you know, they just they want to make a lifestyle change. And then the second category of people would be what I would call a problematic substance user. And so things are still intact in their life, but they there's some cracks showing. Relationships maybe are suffering. Maybe they're not going into work as often. And um and then the third category we would say is a later stage dependency type where uh, there might be a physical addiction to alcohol and or drugs. So to answer your question, depending on where, you know, those uh, clients are categorized, um, well, we would create a treatment plan that's appropriate. Some people would utilize um, sober coaching and perhaps a support group like 12 Steps or Smart Recovery or Life Ring or a private group. Uh, other people, we might include a clinical component if there's some psychological or mental health elements that need to be addressed. And then as we get into maybe a later stage uh, substance user, we would look at a more intensive program like an outpatient program in their own city or an inpatient treatment program, which could be in their own city, but it also could be outside of their own city. Now, a lot of people who have uh, who use substances or, or drink alcohol excessively find that what is impacting their life is not necessarily the alcohol, but what the alcohol does to them. So they may have built up resentments over time. They may have inappropriate anger. Um, they may, uh, you know, it may impact their relationships with their, with their wives or their husbands or their children. They may lose their jobs. They may lose their wives or their husbands or their children. Um, and so how do you deal with, as a sober coach, how do you deal with those things, um, you know, the, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the feeling like they're being, they're being attacked, the inability to uh, utilize conflict resolution. Right. Well, I think they're, like I always say, I'm not a clinician and I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist. I can work within the frame, framework that I'm comfortable working with. And there are some uh, tools and strategies that I have, such as motivational interviewing, um, but but anything sort of uh, related to uh, something where a professional needs to get involved, I always bring in someone else who has that experience. So to answer your question, some of those things I can certainly work through with people. But if, it's, if there's a marriage breakdown, I'm not uh, qualified to deal with that. So I would outsource um, or I would bring someone else on, on the team to address those kind of things. Right. So you're able to align the appropriate treatment strategies with the symptoms or the issues that a person may be having in their life. That's right. That's As, right. And so, and, and so if I may say, so drinking or drug use excessively is often a symptom of other issues that are going on in people's lives. So and, and what are as, some of those issues? 
Well, it could be um, relationship issues, could be marriage, could be um, history of trauma, childhood sexual abuse or PTSD, anxiety. Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of chaos that can that can come from excessive drinking and or drug use. Right? And, depression and, is another one. And these people, and and also alcoholism can lead to depression. So um, once people stop drinking or using substances they may find that their anxiety or their depression has been resolved. A lot of these people are on antidepressant medications, from what I see from the substance, you know, work, substance use work that I do. Yeah, I think that would be accurate. I, I, I truly believe, like, some people come to me who want to minimize or moderate their drinking, and that's well and fine, and some people can do that. The majority of my clients are coming to me because they actually want to create change. They have a willingness and a desire to, like, stop completely. Um, so, and I think it's important that the the person has to stop using the substance in order to address the other issues that are going on. So, uh, I just put someone into treatment uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they will need, you know, they needed two, three days in, in detox, and then they will need at least another couple of weeks without alcohol before they start sort of having a bit more clarity and start diving in and doing the one-to-one counseling work and the group work that's that's needed. Exactly. Well, it sounds like tremendous work that you do, and, and families can contact you directly, and you can you'll hold an intervention with uh, m- perhaps one family member after you gather information, and then um, start on the path to recovery for people. So, how can people get in touch with you, Michael? Michael Walsh, Michael Walsh, yeah. sober coach. <laughs> <laughs> they can get in touch with me by telephone at two five zero eight nine six eight four nine four or by email at coach at michaelwalsh.com. Michael Walsh, thank you so much. You're listening to the Sunday he- Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. If you're suffering with substance use and abuse, this is the guy you want to call. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.